Welcome to American Narratives. I'm Marianne Pina. And I'm Joe Frotcham. And today we have Tina Bowers. Tina, welcome. Welcome. Thank you. Tina is one of my favorite people in the world. And I'm just honored and we're honored to have her as a guest with us. And uh, we look forward to hearing her story. And, you know, just a little bit of background on Tina. She currently serves as the Chief Diversity and Equity of Inclusion Officer for Children's Health here in Dallas, Texas, a large organization that does amazing work uh, with children and one of the top pediatric destination uh, institutions here in the United States, really. So big job there. And she's had progressively larger roles there until she's in her current post. And she's been there about five years. Prior to that, she was with Methodist Health, where she had a series of kind of key roles as a strategist, uh, DE&I leader, learning and development leader. Prior to that, she was at Broad Lane and Tenant Healthcare, where she was similarly in the talent and human capital space. So if you see a trend from an experience standpoint, yes, healthcare, healthcare delivery, that certainly has been where she's left her mark in the talent talent space and really leading a lot of innovation and, and supporting a lot of really interesting programs in that space. And we look forward to hearing more about it. Uh, she got her education undergrad at Chicago State University and a master's degree in business and entrepreneurship from Southern Methodist University. So great pedigree there. Um, I'll stop because I don't want to tell her story. She tells it a lot better than I do, but welcome, Tina. Thank you. Thank you all for having me. I'm really honored to um, be able to sit and chat with you a little bit today. Absolutely. Oh, us too, Tina. Thank you for being here. So let's get started. Um, share more about your personal story, right? I, you're not originally from Texas. And yeah. so where were you born and where, where did your family come from? Yeah, so my family hails from Mississippi, so uh, born and bred in Mississippi and the rural side of it, so kind of a farm girl, fishing, hunting, all of that, the good stuff that comes along with growing up uh, in a southern rural area. Uh, family, come from a family of initially sharecroppers, um, <clears throat> and then we moved to um, a little bit more of a leaning toward education. So my mom was a teacher. My sister was a teacher. I am in a lot of ways a teacher. So we have a lot of um, either education or music. So I have a brother who's a minister of music. Um, we all kind of sing. We're a musical family, not athletic or any of that, right? No painters or any of that, but just more musical. Um, and then I come from a historic military family. So um, have, you know, brothers and cousins and nephews with multiple years of experience serving our country. Um, and so a very um, patriotic family, lots of deep roots in the military. Love Excellent. That. Well, that's obviously a really strong and background and, you know, just painting that picture, right? God, family, country probably was a big piece of it. How did you all right, so you're in Mississippi. Your, your mom's in education, it sounds like. Who were your major influences growing up, and when did you start shaping or thinking about what you might want to do as far as work in a profession? Well, I think my biggest influencer was my mom. Um, like I said, um, our family's roots started in a, um, a level of poverty that you could probably expect to see in rural Mississippi as an African-American family. Um, and we were sharecroppers, and that just was not a good proposition for my mom. Uh, my dad was rural, so he loved the farm life, but my mom wanted something different. So um, she went back to school, um, started working in the, the school system, education system in our small town, 
And it was not easy, right? Uh, not back in the, let's say, the 60s mm-hmm. uh, for a female uh, that was African-American living in rural Mississippi to, one, get an education and, two, be able to use that education to help uplift her family. Um, so she was my earlier influence. And um, then I had a guidance counselor at school um, who first um, mentioned to me, I didn't even think about it, didn't know it, we weren't exposed to it. She said, you know, you could attend a college um, like Harvard. And I was like, what's Harvard? And she just went down this list of, you know, really prestigious schools. Um, and then she said, you can also attend historically black colleges and universities. Um, I opted for the latter, um, mainly because of my own culture and because it was close to home. I could mm-hmm. help still peek in on my mom and my dad. Um, and so attended a uh, HBCU my early years, pledged a sorority, did all the things that you kind of do in your um college year mm-hmm. so shout out to alpha kappa alpha <laughs> sorry <laughs> i love the pink and green um and then um after college i really started to lean into uh folks who were doing a lot of uh activist work civil rights type of work so um, leaning into some folks who were doing that kind of work and um really for some reason um made a connection with Oprah Winfrey. Like, I thought, like, like this person is um, a female that represents my culture um, in an industry where you don't see many people like that. I mean, at that time, she was going up against one of the largest uh, daytime shows and things like that. But I think I made a connection to her um, desire to always create this shared humanity, this connection with our shared humanity, Um, And so I started thinking about that. And um, on the other side of that, just living in urban Chicago, right, trying to figure out what it is I want to do. Um, And in between that time, um, started doing some stuff around marketing and management. And that was okay, but it wasn't my passion, right? I was still drawn to this kind of activism and Mm -hmm. uh, civic duty and that sort of thing. Um, And took a trip down to Dallas to visit my brother who was living here and met a guy. And decided that I was going um, to move to Texas. Um, and then it was just a myriad of different jobs to try and get yourself settled. Right. So mm-hmm. I worked at a, a um, uh, what is it? The, um, I just drew a blank, the places where you go to work out like a, Club, oh, yeah, a fitness club, club yeah, okay. a fitness club, worked at a fitness club, um, and then landed some kind of way in uh, public safety communications, which is police, fire, ambulance uh, type of thing, right? Realized that it's an adrenaline-driven job. I loved it. Like really? Like high yeah. adrenaline, yeah. the ability to multitask, um, the action that goes along with hearing police calls and, and ambulance and fire and all of that and, and did that for seven years, the the burnout rate for that. Who person. did you work for? Was it an agency? City or? of Garland, City of Plano. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you were on tap if like if there was a, a murder or so, some crazy yeah. thing. You're, you're so when you the... call 911, I would be the person to answer the call. 
Um, So we did, I did that. And then I was also the person that the police officers and the firemen would talk to back and forth on their radios and making sure that they were safe and taken care of as they go on, uh, respond to calls and so forth. So um, that was a a pretty high adrenaline job. You pick up some very sound skills, Mm -hmm. right, that you could move with Let me test something with you. Okay. Um, I love this story because I always look for these common threads. You came from a background where you got out of your bubble, look back at it and say, there's some need there and I want to help. You also came from a history where you had a very strong mother who kind of surmounted challenges and also a background in which duty Mm -hmm. to country, military was also important. How how important were those influences and kind of shaping what you wanted to do and your need to make an impact, not just pull a paycheck? Yeah, I think they were, they helped me stay grounded, right? Because if you're in an environment where many things around you say to you that you are destined to be a statistic or that you are not able to achieve something, that gave me grounding, right? So I really did think about joining the military because that's a big thing in my family um, and um, decided that that wasn't going to be for, be for me. Um, and I was just drawn to this education piece, right? How can I get into some space where I'm teaching or helping people to learn and grow and develop and that was a passion. It sparked a passion. Um, couple that with um, the desire to help humanity, to connect with underserved individuals and marginalized communities. Um, and it's just this perfect um, thing, right? This perfect uh, amalgamation of passion and um, background and training that I loved. Um, and so I landed in the learning space. And so how did that happen? So your yeah. first responder world, seven years, being a, a, mm-hmm. a bridge between these first responders and sometimes pretty hairy, crazy mm-hmm. situations, I'm sure. I'm sure you could write a book on those stories, oh. right? Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, my gosh. Just the, the stuff they see and have to deal with. And you're kind of a hub. And how did you pivot out of that and get into kind of what was your first role in this more formalized path that you went on for a number of decades. Right. right? How, exactly. did, how did that begin and how'd you get there? So in the public safety communication world, doing those three functions, um, answering 911 calls, police, fire, ambulance, uh, you refer to as a dispatcher. And at the seven year mark, which the burnout rate for that role was four years, I did seven years. And at that point I was numb right? Just you become anesthetized to things because you're hearing these really mm-hmm. horrible things all day, every day. Um, and I knew I needed to get out before I became like a walking zombie with no human connection. Yep. Um, and I saw a little job posted for a little community hospital um, in Garland. Uh, and it was for a dispatch role for behavioral health. I was like, I can do this. I'm, I'm a dispatcher. I can do this. Um, and my first healthcare job was in a closet literally in a closet (laughs) with brooms and mops and one little table with a microphone where I could speak to one guy who was probably in his 70s who was driving a little van to pick up behavioral health patients. Um, And I did that for probably a year. I just needed to detox from all the other stuff that I was carrying with me from my uh, previous job and somehow stumbled into the behavioral health unit 
and talked to a couple of people up there, and that started my career. I was a mental health tech. I sat and did patient sitting and watching patients. I did scheduling for nurses and things like that. We had, um, you know, daytime psych. We had what we called JIRA psych then, um, and we had um, our outpatient psych. They called it psych then. It's behavioral health now. So that started my career uh, in healthcare. Wow. So you went from the closet. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Literally. Literally. Like, I, I, I'm cracking up just t- talking to one guy when you're in the closet with next to the mob. Yes. This is a bad... He was the sweetest guy, though. Sure, he's wonderful. But it's just kind of... A, it's it's obvious in retrospect, he probably laughed, too. Absolutely. Right? It's kind of fun. But then you, you, you kind of owned your career. You could have sat in the closet to this day, probably. Yeah. But you didn't. No. That wasn't going to do it for me. I'm, um, I was always driven, and I knew that I wanted more... Um, my family's expectations mm-hmm. were always that you would achieve at your highest level, right? So college, get a great job, um, help give back to your community, um, you know, get married, you know, the whole dream and American dream, not necessarily the only American dream, but sure. an American dream. Um, and that was important for my mom, the education piece. So um, there was no option not to continue to move forward in my career. So at that point, tapped into something that I loved and just drove for it. And it was it was not easy. By did any you means. network? Did you? How did you kind of pivot out? You know, because because you know our audience, they're out there, they're looking up to you, Tina. They say, right. "I want to be her someday." Oh yeah. wow! That's well, I want to highlight something because you already mentioned it. You didn't say the word network, but you said, "I went up there and I talked to people." Mm-hmm. That's yeah. networking. Today, that is right? absolutely, absolutely. I just wandered onto the unit and started talking to people, um, and. You know, it was relationship building when I wasn't focused on relationship building because this was very early in my career. I was very young, probably in my early 20s, um, and realized that I had transferable skills from my my job with the, the two city organizations and started, someone offered me a job, hey, we're looking for a unit secretary. You know, would you like that job? And I was like, sure. Um, and that's one thing that my mom kind of always um, taught us, and my dad as well, is that if an opportunity presents itself, even if you are horrified, like terrified, mm-hmm. like, like I can't do this, I'm not the person, um, still take it. Don't let an opportunity pass. And I've, I've kind of leaned into that my whole career. I love it. And again, that's one of the golden nuggets hopefully our listeners right. will grab from this. And I'm, I'm inspired by it. I I. I I didn't know that piece of your background, yeah, so that's yeah. very cool. So g- take us from there. You're you're in the unit, you're unit secretary. Remember now, she's chief diversity officer <laughs> for a large, very large healthcare system. So there's a lot of activity between those yes, two points. Yes, but huh? I will. I'll try and keep yeah. it. Give us <laughs> that Cliff Notes version. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so um, that job, they cl- they started to close down behavioral health care units, um, and I needed to find another place. So you start looking in the career board at your job, and I saw a job for a secretary, same kind of skills, but this was in the outside of the hospital at the business office, like mm-hmm. the corporate office, um, and took that role and worked as an EA for probably three years. Um, and at the three-year mark, that was just not doing it for me. So I went to my boss, and I said, hey, I want to do more. And she said, well, you write me up a job description of what you want to do. Um, and this was at Tenant Healthcare, and we will make it happen. 
And uh, we were just starting to kick off some work around leadership development, a leadership development program. And so I said, I think I could do that. I could support that program and coordinate things. And I wrote a job description for a program uh, coordinator and gave that to her. And she said, sure. She said, but the one thing I want you to do is I want you to go back to school and get your um, master's degree. Because I had a bachelor's at the time. And I said, okay, um, but I was right in the middle of raising a young family. I got married, my children were young, and I just could not make that happen. Um, and so I started working in the leadership development space and the learning space that grew into the learning space and um, where I met you actually and worked with Joe for a while there in that space um, and um, really really love that piece as well, right? So how do you grow and develop people? How do, how do you help them to prepare um, for the reality, mm-hmm. not the theory that they necessarily learn in college? It's like, that's great. There's a reality that's a little bit different from that. Um, and so worked in that space for seven years, and Tenet did a little spinoff a company called Broad Lane, and they were looking for someone to stand up their um, leadership uh, learning space and so I moved over there um, did some work there did some consulting yeah. uh, or I was an orthopedics implant contract manager <laughs> that was fun <laughs> right because it's that whole vein of never let an opportunity to learn something was new that like a, that your title or is that just a portion of your job it, it was a portion of the job so I had about uh, maybe three and a half million dollars worth of contracts under wow. my purview wow. in the Texas Arkansas region. Well, and that's part of Broadlane's model. Yeah. Right? So, yeah. so you had a little bit of client facing work at that yeah, point. Client. So not just in the HR department and learning development, but do you think that was helpful to have a role like that? It was helpful because you know in the learning development space, you're not necessarily focused on things like um, finance and ROIs mm-hmm. and P and Ls and those sorts of things. Like you're more focused on. Um, trying to provide the best education that will help people to grow and develop and those sorts of things. So it was very helpful. It was also helpful for uh, relationship building. And the, at that time in the orthopedic implant sale world, it was very male-dominated. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I would travel with my partner consultants, and I love them, uh, three guys, you talk about an eye-opener, there were some uh, scary guy stuff going on out there. I bet there was. Like, you're like, we're going to meet clients where? <laughs> you're like, no, I don't want to do Hooters. I, let's just do it at their office. Right? <laughs> but you learn um, how business gets done in a lot of ways, right? You learn that, you know, though that might not be the ideal model, you really have to uh, connect with your clients and your customers, understand their world, understand what their needs are, and then develop a strategic plan to help address those needs. Well, uh, you know, I thank you. And just stop on that for a sec, because you, one, I'm gonna, I'm comment that very opportunistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, you keep an open mind, not a rigid mind, uh, and you've had some major pivots career-wise from the, you know, from the first responder to the to the closet <laughs> to the EA roles right. to proactively telling, hey, I want more. And she's saying, I trust you. I shape you. I value you. Do it. Mm-hmm. And and then, you know, taking their mentorship to, okay, I'm going to be in frontline contract administration leadership role that's not in human resources. I'm all in. Very different audience. I mean, all men. And you showed the range, openness, and emotional intelligence, I think, that 
I see, I, I call it career improvisation. Mm-hmm. It's never exactly what you think it's going to be. And it sounds like you you were opportunistic. Would you, would you agree? I think I was very um, open to what came my way. I, the one thing that I didn't share was running in the background of all of that was this deep desire for equity. Right, because you are immersed in worlds sometime where you're exposed to individuals and you're like, well, they're doing something similar to me or they're doing something different and they're being highly compensated and those things, right? And I wanted all those same things for my family. I wanted a, a great salary. I wanted to have a career and not just a job. I wanted to be able to send my children to college. Mm-hmm. I wanted to have health insurance, right, where I could pay for um, health care when it was needed. I wanted to take my family on vacations, right? That, you know, we could actually get on a plane and, and fly out out of Texas, right? And go do some fun things. Um, and so there was also that drive to also uh, help my husband support our family, right? I wanted all those things that uh, people want for their family. So that was also a driving factor for me as well. Yeah, you know, thank you for sharing that. And I'll highlight two kind of key behaviors that I hear throughout your journey. Number one, it's curiosity too. Mm-hmm. And the other one is ambitious. Mm-hmm. And so many times people don't really stop and think it's important to be curious, to mm-hmm. ask, to talk, to network. Mm-hmm. And it's also okay to be ambitious. Yeah, absolutely. Especially for women, right? Yeah. Um, I come from a, a Southern family, like I said, and there is a role in the South for a female. And that role is, especially if it's connected to a faith perspective, right? And that's this submissive role to your husband. And I I agree with all of that. It's a partnership. Wait, what? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, more of a partnership. I don't, I don't know about Did all that submissive that, stuff. <laughs> but, um, yeah. And so, you know, for a woman to own her career, to own that desire for growth and development and to be ambitious, right. Um, that was a very bold statement for my family, um, but I was supported by you know very, having a very strong mom, um, and so I think just that drive to achieve uh, and to mm-hmm. learn more and to see what's out there, um, and then you hit this this place um, in your career where once you achieve some of those things, because sometimes the pursuit of the thing is as energizing as having the thing, right? Reaching that level. And when you get there, you're like, okay, now I'm here, now what? Right. And like many people, you pivot to how can I help humanity? This is not just about me anymore. It's not just about my family specifically. Um, How can I help humanity? How can I give back? How can I help other people achieve some level of success mm-hmm. um, and then you start to slow down and think about you know what am I putting into this world uh, that is positive and um, beautiful I love, it. I love it I could tell you've really thought through this and and work's not just a job it's a mission and that's cons- a consistent feature I hear from successful right. leaders that we talk to it so, so, okay, so you're a broad lane, a lot of interesting roles, uh, said no to the Hooters lunches, that sort of thing. Uh, and it's okay to take a stand exactly. if it's principled, by exactly. the way. Exactly. There's nothing, people will nothing respect that. Even if they're inconvenienced in the short term, Absolutely. do it. I completely Absolutely. agree. So I, I, broad lane ended. What happened next? Tell us. What. So at broad lane, I 
kind of start to have this itch to get back into the hospitals because my clients were hospital clients. And so you go to visit your client, you're in the hospital and you're seeing the hospital again. It's the smell of the hospital, the rhythm, the pace. You're seeing people smiling um, or not, uh, depending on their patient experience. And I had this itch to go back into the hospital. Um, and so I found a role in a marketing space at Children's Health um, and went over, had some conversations, joined that uh, department, and I was there probably 90 days and got deathly ill. Oh, wow. Yeah, I had to go out um, and went out to take care of myself. And as I was coming on the other side of my health crisis, I got a call from Methodist Health System. And it was in the OE space, working for an amazing uh, man named Steve Maffei, who I, I love and adore, um, and uh, joined his team um, as an OE strategist. And that was, you know, a little bit of a shift from just this very specific focus on learning and education, but really how do we um, operationalize these things in organizations? How do we uh, bring in disparate uh, pieces of information um, into something that creates a plan so that you can measure it and you can see the efficacy of the work? Um, so just being very strategic in that way. And so um, four years into that, was loving that job. And um, Steve and a, a young lady named Cheryl Flynn, who I love, um, came to me and said, hey, have you thought about doing some DEI work? And I was like, okay, here we go. Say, yep, thought about it, don't want to do it. Why the resistance? Yeah, because um, my historical knowledge or experience with DEI, it was that it was very superficial. Um, it was really tied to training, right? Um, and there wasn't, at that juncture, a very uh, apparent commitment from executives and organizations to do it, right? There was a some incentive because it's the right thing to do and everybody wants to be on the right side of right, but I was not interested in performative DEI. Uh, never have been and I'm still not. Um, so when I was approached, I was like, yeah, not really interested in that. Um, and uh, they assured me that this would be meaningful DEI work. Um, and so for three years, I started working on the plan there and how we could get um, DEI embedded into the organization uh, there at Methodist. Um, and that was, that really, you know, really hit the passion button for me. I was hooked, uh, hook, line, and sinker. Um, and um, did that work for three years and really tried, got to understand what it means to do that work in a strategic way, mm -hmm. right? Not a performative way. Um, and really enjoyed that. Um, for three years, and then um, was at a conference and met a young lady from Children's, and she said, hey, have you thought about coming, to, you know, thought about working elsewhere? I was like, nope, I am loving Methodist. There is no need for me to leave. <laughs> um, but um, I went over to visit her for lunch, and we did a tour of the hospital. And if you are a person who cannot connect to helping make life better for children, and you see those little faces, and you're walking through that hospital, and oh my gosh, I was like, yep, this is it. I can do it. Um, and four years later, almost five, I'm still there, loving it. Wow, that is, 
Uh, thank you for sharing that. I, I, I hear, you know, it's funny. I, I find careers go through three phases. You know, the first phase is you get out of school, college, whatever. I just need a job. Mm-hmm. <laughs> pay. I just need my money. Yeah. And as long as a check hits a bank and it's roughly legal and ethical, I'm probably okay. <laughs> the, the second phase is I want to enjoy my job. I don't want to hate going to work. The third phase is I want to leave a legacy. Mm-hmm. And you've really, you're really at legacy phase, have been for mm-hmm. quite some yeah. time. Yeah. I'm at legacy phase. And it's interesting that you say that because when people talk to me now about my job and I tell them it's about legacy. Now, at this juncture, um, how can you make a difference in an organization that is meaningful, right? I can do work that will help create shareholder value at any organization. I can do work that's mission-driven for nonprofits at any organization. Um, But what is the legacy that I want to leave? What I will say, you know, at the legacy juncture, one of the things that you really become clear about is the difference between your purpose and your role. Those are two very, very different things, right? So, you know, the role is often written and dictated by someone there in the organization, right? And they've got this job description and you know what your role is. But if that role is not aligned with your purpose, if it's not aligned with your passion, if it's not aligned with your calling, right, from a faith perspective, if if you're not anointed to do the work, then you are just killing time and you're not giving the best to the organization. Um, that that purpose-driven piece of it also helps sustain you in the tough times, right? You know, no job is perfect. I don't care what level you're at the organization, you're gonna hit some highs and lows and peaks and valleys and there's always change happening. And if you're not grounded in something, you just keep getting caught up in the flow. So you have to really be grounded in your purpose because there's always going to be someone asking, hey, have you ever tried this or you ever tried that? And that's great for opportunity. But at a juncture in your career, you're like, I know what I love. I know what my purpose is. And I want to do X. I want to do this. If that aligns with a role for you, great. If it doesn't align with the role for you, then you're you know, you're going to be looking for something that aligns more with your purpose because that's what's going to get you out of bed in the morning. Couldn't agree more. No, it's know yourself and know your purpose. And and the world will ultimately reward and rally around that passion. I complete. So we've got a few kind of uh, takeaway questions we want to ask you for our group because you have a world of experience and self-awareness and in many ways reflect your your more progressed version of many people listening. Right. So we want to leave them. You've already left them a lot. Mm-hmm. So we want to. First one is, you know, tell us about a difficult. You've talked about difficulties and purpose kind of helps you engine through it. But is there a specifically difficult time that you had? Perhaps it, it was an equity issue or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was it? And how would you navigate through it? Because we're all going to go through that stuff. Yeah. I think the, probably the most difficult time from a professional perspective is what many women who have a full-time career in a family um, experience and that was trying to be a wife and a mother um, and a career professional um, when I was a consultant I would um, leave home on a uh, at noon on a Sunday or I'd try to take a red eye and stay home as long as I could and I'd be gone until Friday night so I had one full day home with my children and maybe a half a day to pack and get ready to leave again so most of my daughter's middle school years, they're blur. Mm-hmm. And I carry that guilt with me today. 
um, but it is this balancing act, act of trying to determine priorities, right? Um, I, I want this life for you. Here is what's going to be the cost and deciding if you want to pay the cost. I had an amazing um, life partner, my husband of 30-something-odd years, um, who uh, stepped into the role of mom and dad while I traveled. Um, and made that a little bit easier, but that's a daily decision that you have to make as a female professional, balancing between the guilt of not being there for your children and your family um, and pouring a lot of yourself into building a career. Fantastic. Two more quick questions, but this is really good stuff. Um, what's next? Where, where, where are you going to do? <laughs> um, I think, you know, from a legacy building perspective, I want to ensure that in my current role, um, I when I decide that it's time to exit the organization, that I've left a solid legacy of um, really positive, productive contribution to the organization and to the people who work there. I hope that I've created some deep relationships and um, that I've not destroyed any intentionally or unintentionally. Um, but for me, next is uh, going home and being a GG, uh, getting more grounded um, and being able to do more work in my community, um, You know, serving the little town that I live in, sitting on a board or something. Um, and then, sadly, I've been working on a book for about four years probably finishing that book at some juncture. <laughs> I would love to do that. Um, and just figuring out ways to give back. I would love to do a, a trip to, you know, Nepal or somewhere and really just go and detox from a 25-year career sure. um, in a, a corporate environment and get back in touch with, deep, do more deep reflection for myself and, and figure out how I can give back. And Gigi means grandma. Yeah, right. grandma. Yes, I was about to say that. Yeah, be a grandma. Last question. Last question. Yeah. Yeah. What would be, what would be any just last thoughts, key lessons that you would want the audience to take away? Well, I would say, you know, if you're listening and you're early in your career, just know it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. Don't make really critical decisions that will impact your life in the long term because of a short-term situation, right? You know, getting fired is not the end of the world. You'll get another job. Yeah, it'll hurt for a moment, but you'll get another job. You don't want to go down that path, but you'll get another job. Um, you know, friendships that, because people, I, I heard Michelle Obama say, you know, that they couldn't take the air at the next level, right? You're going to lose some friends and you're going to make new friends. Um, never say no to an opportunity unless it's illegal or immoral and doesn't align with your values, but explore opportunities. Um, if you're mid-career, just dig in and work hard. It's, you're going to have to work really hard, and if you are members of specific cultural groups, marginalized groups, historically underrepresented groups, there is no um, way around it. You're going to have to work doubly hard. That's just the truth of the matter and full transparency. Um, and then latter career, um, I would just say legacy. Leave a legacy. Be clear on your, you know, your purpose. 
um, and leave a legacy. Um, but it's going to be okay. I love it. And purpose and values. That's purpose what I hear. Purpose and values and perspective. Yeah. Purpose, values, and perspective are some of the themes I hear. Well, this is excellent. I, I'm inspired, actually. It's, awesome. it's not just what you say, but how you say it. There's a lot of energy and engagement. You're, you you light up. I can tell you, you really are aligned, self-aware of what you're doing and doing it very, very well in the world. So thank you so much for sharing your story. And just so y'all know, Joe did contribute to the person that I am today. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of wisdom from him while uh, he and I worked together. Uh, Tita's always been a, like I said, I, I shared something earlier and I won't share it here, but uh, a, a really good soul, a good person. And and you, and what I find is good people, you know, what you throw out there in the world tends to come back at you. Karma's yeah. real. And I think you're, you're, you're bearing the fruits of really good karma. So. Well, I appreciate that. I truly believe that as well, right? You have, you have desires and aspirations, and the universe will rise up to meet you. But certainly what you put out there will come back. It does. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, sure.